So here's a question for you uh, this morning as we start. Actually, a couple of questions. Uh, how many here, don't raise your hand. How many here like your jobs? Don't raise your hand. Or maybe I should say, how many here don't like their jobs? How many here think work is sometimes a pain? How many here work with difficult people? You don't have to raise your hand, all right? According to the USA Today, an article, uh, it was actually in 2008, that had several workplace studies uh, indicate that American workers are not fond of the people they work with. When asked if a co-worker had ever tried to make them look bad in the workplace, 50% of the respondents said yes, 48% said no. When asked, which causes more stress at work, co-workers or the workload, 51% said it's the co-workers, and uh, 49% said workload. When asked if if, uh, they work with one or more annoying co-workers, 86% said yes, while only 13% said no. In another survey conducted, I got to get into better light. That's a little better. A survey conducted by researchers at Florida State University found that employees who endure some kind of abuse at work, emotional abuse, uh, could be some physical abuse. And here were, here were the examples. There really were, it wasn't physical abuse here. Um, abuse like avoidance or given the silent treatment in the workplace by their boss. Um, ignoring employees' emails. Verbal put-down by the supervisor. Broken promises by the employer. Managers or supervisors blaming their mistakes on the people that work for them. On the other side, the employees retaliated. 30% slowed their work production or purposely made errors in their work. 29% took sick days off when they weren't sick. 27% purposely avoided their boss. 25% took longer breaks than they were allowed. A 2013 article in the Atlantic entitled Career Advice, Give, 70% of Americans report that work is a major source of stress. Over 50% of Americans report that they are unhappy with their jobs. Adam Grant of the Horton School of Business made these observations. He he put workers from this study into three categories. People are takers or matchers or givers. Takers see the workplace as a competitive dog-eat-dog environment. If If I don't look out for myself, nobody else will. Matchers believe that 
The work environment is governed by an exchange of favors. I'll do this, but I want you to do this in return. If I do this, I expect that. Givers are others-focused, paying attention to what others need from them. They are generous toward others. Only 8% of the American workforce identifies themselves as givers. Apparently, most people assume that in the workplace, givers will never get ahead in their careers. Grant also observed that when people are stressed out at work, they tend to uh, retreat into a taker mentality when under stress. Grant also discovered that givers are some of the most successful people in business, and they are often the happiest people in the workplace. So which one of those do you think would most describe Jesus? A giver, a taker, or a matcher? So last week we began a new series about work. And we asked the question, why work? And we started in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And we did that intentionally because back in Genesis 1, where everything got its start, God was very intentional about laying out his plans. Genesis 1 is a, is a macro view of creation. Genesis 2 is a micro view of creation, zeroing in on just the sixth day, especially on the creation of the male and the female. So uh, by way of review, um, just remind you of some of the things we mentioned last week. First of all, God is a worker. He's the creator God. He had a plan of a six-day work week. You know, he could have done it any way he wanted it, but he modeled something for us. Here it is. It's amazing. We have a seven-day rhythm to our schedules after all these years. He worked six, carefully planned out, didn't do too much the first day. And then he took the day off and he rested and he did it for us. Um, God has worked throughout history, uh, moving to accomplish his plans. Uh, God moved to solve the sin problem by doing all the work of our salvation. And God is still at work, and he's loving, and he's caring, and he's providing, and he's leading, and he's guiding, and he's saving, and he's empowering. He's still at work. And God, we, this is the second thing, is that God created people to be workers. God is a worker, and he created people to be workers. Uh, he, we are created in his image. Is that one of those passages we have, Genesis 1? It's actually Genesis 1.27, which is my fault. We are created in his image. I can remind you, because you can remember that, that we are created in the image of God. Something about the way God designed humanity that we reflect him. Uh, we reflect him in his personhood, uh, not in a total way, but he is a person. He's not an animal. We are persons. 
Uh, we have an intellect, a will, and emotions. We have personhood. Um, we reflect the image of God is a worker, and he has put that in our DNA. Really, it's in our DNA to reflect the image of God. Uh, if you remember, let's go on to the... Uh, we are created in his image. The next one is created to contribute to God's good world. Created to contribute to God's good world. Now think about this. Six days God created. He paused to look at his work and he said six times, it is good. It is good. It is good. And the amazing thing is on the sixth day, not until he had created the woman... And he said, it is very good. That was his work. That's what he created. It is good. It is a good world. It is a good earth that he created. And uh, we have been created to contribute. Remember? He, he uh, put the man in the gar- garden and he said, I want you to rule over all of this. The, the animals, the plants. Uh, food for you. I want you to be fruitful and to multiply. There's going to be some work involved in caring for lots and lots of people, taking care of kids and feeding them. This is just part of who man is. Humans are. Uh, And we are created to contribute good what God has created as good. Um, Also, God created us to work for him. Do you remember that? Leah read earlier, Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it and all who live in it. And when we understand rightly who we are, we are stewards, we are caretakers, we are managers. Yes, We can have resources, and yes, we can own property. We should care for it and care for it well. If we're going to, if it's about investing, invest well. Use your money wisely. Um, We are stewards. And um, remember that we work for an audience of one. I'm going to mention this a little bit later, but be reminded. It's not about pleasing people in the workplace. Yes, you have to work for perhaps an employer or a supervisor. And yes, you're to follow their instructions. But the ultimate person we work for is an audience of one. And it is the Lord Christ that we serve. Uh, So, today we're going to talk about the difficulty of work. Perhaps you've recognized that sometimes there's difficulty in your work. First of all, work can be a pain. Isn't that true? Work can be a pain. I get, there it is. It is a pain, after all. Uh, Whether you work at home or in the classroom or in a factory or an office cubicle, work can be very frustrating. You may have a pile of dirty laundry while preparing supper and dealing with three screaming kids. 
Sounds like work. Sounds like that might be difficult. You may have a computer glitch or a production machine malfunction and have an unrealistic deadline. You may deal with difficult customers or a demanding boss. Your labor uh, force and your resources may have been cut back, and yet the expectations are still the same. Sometimes work is a pain. Why is that? The nature and context of human work change because of sin. The nature and context of human work has changed, and it's because of sin. So think of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and this is how everything got its start. And it was good, and it was really an ideal environment. And can you imagine the world where sin hadn't entered the universe? That's what Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are all about. But then there's Genesis 3. And God, in Genesis 3, gave the first man and the first woman one prohibition, one thing. Okay, don't do this. There's a tree. Do not eat from this tree. It's the only one. Enjoy. Bless you, my children. Be fruitful and multiply as much as you want. Don't eat of this tree. And of course, you know the story. It's exactly what they did. And we come to Genesis 3, verses 17 through 19. And then God gets involved after their failure. And God says to Adam, because you listened to your wife. By the way, sometimes you should listen to your wife. Maybe a lot. Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. Because of what happened, it changed the creation environment. And some of the order in the universe that God was holding together because uh, it allowed his total presence because there was no sin. Now that's been removed and there is uh, chaos beginning in the work in the in the world uh, in creation and it's going to be in Adam's workplace. Um, Go, uh, go back uh, to 17. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, the obstacles in your work are going to multiply. They're going to increase. You still will be a worker. It's just going to be a whole lot more difficult. There are going to be more obstacles as chaos begins to influence your day-to-day life. And you're going to have to work harder for the food. Next slide. It will produce thorns and thistles, for you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, it's going to be a lot harder work. You will eat your food until you return to the ground. Now death enters the creation account. Human death enters 
the creation account. You will return to the ground since from it you were taken. For dust you are and dust you will return. Um, So, the nature and context. Not only that, Adam and Eve are going to have to change their locations. They can no longer be in this ideal environment, but they are cast out into a new location. Also, the creation itself longs for restoration. We think we just saw how it affects the work life of the human, but the creation itself longs for restoration. Since uh, Genesis chapter 3, God has had a plan for restoration of creation and restoration of humans with him. Um, here we see in Romans 8, 22 and 23 what, uh, what God's plan is. We know that the whole creation has been grow, groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. That would have been the first century. Uh, Paul, as an observer and as a spokesman for God, has recognized he's traveled a lot. He's been to a lot of places in the world in the first century. And creation is unpredictable. And he's saying creation is groaning. There's something bigger here at play. And I think if the Apostle Paul were alive today and um, he were here and learned about the hurricanes we've experienced and the earthquake in Mexico, he would, we're getting closer to the need for restoration. This creation is groaning. Uh, There's an upheaval in creation. I think Jesus talks about that too in Matthew chapter 24. But creation is impacted greatly. And we just think about the work that the hurricanes or the earthquake or tornadoes. Think about the work that they create just to restore back to sanity. The creation itself longs for restoration. But God has a plan. Um, Verse 23, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. There's something in us that yearns for restoration. And the redemption of our bodies is when Jesus comes back. God's plan for restoration is when Jesus comes back. If you want to see that, it's in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 13, and Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. But also, sometimes work seems meaningless. Like there's no point to it. The work we do seems like it's worthless. You produce something good, and then it's used up immediately. Um, Or you don't understand how this little thing that I'm doing really makes any difference. Uh, When I first got married, I worked nine years in a tire factory. The first five years, I was a tire builder. I actually had the opportunity to do something good by 
producing tires. As a tire builder, by piecework, I got paid for every tire that I built. You know, there was a, there was a rate, and there was inst- all this training on how to do this. And you'd work around five minutes to build a tire, maybe four minutes for a faster tire, or five and a half minutes for a slow tire. And then you take it off, and you put it on the conveyor belt. What do you do? You turn around, and you do it again. What do you do? You turn around, and you do it again. Do it again all day long. It oftentimes just seemed like I was just a cog in the machinery. Now, I did it for the money. I did get paid. But I felt sometimes pretty worthless what I was doing. And sometimes to me it seemed meaningless, even though I would say adding a tire, a good tire to a car is a good thing. I might say that today. I'm not sure I would have thought of that then. Uh, Solomon recognized that work is often meaningless. Ecclesiastes 2, verses 17 and 18. So Solomon writes, and he he really can be discouraging. The book of Ecclesiastes can really be discouraging. He said, so I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. It was painful. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. You know, you go after the wind, how do you catch it? There's nothing there. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. Solomon didn't want to leave them to his kids. They were just going to use them up and destroy them, and they weren't going to appreciate them. And sometimes Solomon was discouraged, and he saw this as meaningless. Um, Ecclesiastes 2, verses 22 and 23. What do people get for all the toil, all the work, and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days, their work is grief and pain. How exciting is that? Even at night, their minds do not rest. I bet you've, I bet there's been some people in here who've stressed out about work at night or had a dream about work at night, or their work has kept them up at night. This, too, is meaningless. Let's just give up. It's too hard. Um, But sometimes works brings deep satisfaction. And Solomon got that, too. Uh, In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, what do workers gain for their toil? Good question. Here's kind of his summary. I've seen the burden God has laid on the human race. Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3. Work, it's in our DNA. We're contributed to do good. We're to care for creation. And then, man, now it's going to get really hard. We're going to labor and labor and sweat and have obstacles. But he, verse 11, has made everything beautiful in its time. From the beginning to the end, God is at work accomplishing his purposes. And when we look back at it one day, we'll see how beautiful it really was. Uh, There's a big plan that God is accomplishing and working out. You know, the amazing thing is, he's chosen us to be a part of it. 
he has also set eternity in the human heart. There's something about humans. This, is, this has always encouraged me. Uh, especially when I'm talking to somebody who's not interested in spiritual things. God has so designed that there's something about being created in his image that we're wanting to connect with eternity. There's, think of how many movies, how many things in culture are about eternal death or which relates to the demonic or the dark side. And um, I'm not saying that's absolute proof. I'm just saying that's a symptom of our culture. He has set eternity in the human heart. Now, if you'd asked me when I was in college, I would say, no way. I want to understand the world. Give me the facts. Let me break it down. Let me quantify it. I can handle it. Not eternity. Um, He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from the beginning to the end. We're not going to be able to figure it out. Next slide. I know there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live. This is his conclusion, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. Would you like that gift? To be able to work and to uh, toil and to be satisfied and then thank you, God, for providing. Thank you for this Ability to party and celebrate your goodness. And we know that most things are about how we view the world from from the inside. Do we let our circumstances control what's inside? Or is our relationship with God put our circumstances on the inside in order? I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken away from it. God God does it so that people will fear him. God is working to accomplish his plan and he wants people to understand who he is and come into it. He invites them to come into a relationship with them and he wants to use us as a part of this plan. He is building an eternal kingdom. Um, okay work can be a pain sometimes work can be distorted work can be distorted not what God intended back in Genesis 1 and 2 for some work can be too important I've stumbled into this a few times in my life Uh, work can be too important uh, we might find workaholism. There's a lot of people, a lot of reasons why people put work as the most significant thing in their life. Sometimes they don't even enjoy it, but they're just driven because of a lot of internal things going on. Sometimes they're career driven. They thought it through. This is what they want. They're going to go after it. And they're going to make sacrifices to get there. And it becomes number one, the most important not that you can't have a career. It's not that you can't shoot for it. It's not that you can't, can't have goals. There's just a place for God as well. And, and he wants to be first. Sometimes 
People are focused on materialism. Um, you know, I'd like to accumulate more and more things, and so this will make me happy, and this is what I want, so I need to work a little more, so I'll do this, and if I do this, I can get a raise, and I can get a little more money, and then we can have a better lifestyle. I just would remind us, uh, Exodus 20, verse 3, that I remind myself of quite a bit, you shall have no other gods before me. That's what God desires. He just wants to be number one. When we put something else in that number one place, the Bible would call it an idol. Matthew six twenty four. Uh, Jesus gave us this instructions. He said, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other. You will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Except in America. We American Christians think we can do both. A lot of Christians like God and think God's important. They even give. Some give generously. But sometimes they end up with another master. And I'm not saying people can't have nice things or they can't spend money on... I'm just... It's about who is Lord, who is the master of your life. Jesus said you can't do both. You have a choice. Jesus taught a parable for those who focus on accumulating possessions. And um, it's about the man who keeps building bigger and bigger barns. He keeps being successful. He gains more and more. And so he keeps expanding, expanding. And Jesus tells a story, Luke chapter 12. But God said to him... You fool. That's what God's perspective on accumulating stuff was. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. It's about the things being more important than God. So, For some, work is too important. For some, work is something to be avoided. Maybe you know somebody like this. Work is something to be avoided. The Bible calls um, those people sluggards. Uh, Proverbs chapter 15, verse 19, the way of the slugger is blocked with thorns, but the path of the upright is a highway. One of the problems is for lazy people their decision leads them to more obstacles. And for the person, the upright person, and this is the wise person in the book of Proverbs, uh, a diligent person, uh, one who works and thinks about taking care of their family for the future, and uh, they're going to have a whole lot le- less obstacles. There's gonna, the road's going to open up as they begin to move. Proverbs 20, verse 4 is another passage. Sluggards do not plow in season, so that the harvest time they look but find nothing. This is kind of a silly picture. The lazy person doesn't do the prep work, and then it's time for harvest and time to, to, to bring in the money, and they go out there and they're looking, and where's my harvest? Oh yeah, I forgot. And just a little wise principle. Proverbs 21 verse 25. 
The craving of a sluggard will be, at, will be the death of him because his hands refuse to work. You know, the, the lazy person has plenty of desires to, to have more or to do this or to get this, but they refuse to work. This isn't somebody who cannot work. The sluggard is somebody who refuses to work. Uh, Proverbs 26, verse 16 A sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven people who answer discreetly. So one thing uh, about the nature of a lazy person, the book of Proverbs tells us, is they're an expert about many subjects. They apparently have time to think about a lot of things, and they become experts. And um, they see themselves as the smartest person in the room. For some, work gets compartmentalized. We talked about this last week. Work gets compartmentalized into the sacred and the secular. And uh, we have a diagram for that. Okay, just think of it this way. Work is separated by a human uh, opinion between sacred things, sacred work, and secular work. We have them stacked here because there's an assumption that sacred is more important than secular. And or another way we talk about it is we talk about Christian work. Something is Christian and something is worldly. Uh, and here's what I want to say. There's no distinction in the Bible between sacred work and secular work. It is not there. It's really a confusing idea. I'm really hoping we can change that perspective, that we learn to filter it ourselves, even though the Christian world is going to use it, I think, wrongly. And um, there's no distinction in the Bible. All work is to be for God. We have an audience of one. Um, This is a verse we looked at last week. Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, it makes no difference. Child care, surgery, factory work, lawn care, studying for midterm exams, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. We have an audience of one. It is the Lord Christ. He's the one that matters the most. Yes, we have human employers or supervisors, and we have government responsibilities working within the law, and they're all important. But ultimately, we have an audience of one. And remember this from last week. The only Christian work is good work well done. The only Christian work is good work well done. Should our work that we do be described as Christian? It should be if we represent Jesus well in what we do, whatever it is.
maybe our work shouldn't be called Christian work because it doesn't represent Jesus. Now, if we're in a kind of work that's like totally immoral, then that would not be Christian work and probably a job to be avoided. However, there are not a lot of those jobs. There are some. There are not a lot. So, um, doing good work is doing what we can with the resources we have. Life is not perfect, and God is not expecting perfection, but good work that honors Him. Sometimes we get all crazy about perfection. Oh, I'm not perfect, and that's not perfect, and I give up. There's nothing in the Bible that says everything that you do has to be perfect. Thirdly, work can be transformed. Work has a new purpose when the worker is transformed by the gospel. So when a person encounters God and comes into a relationship with Jesus Christ and understands grace, that God loves him, and that God did the work of salvation, that he sent Jesus, that Jesus died on the cross, that he paid the penalty for all sin, for my sin. There's nothing I can do to earn it or deserve it. When a person understands that and places their faith in Jesus Christ, then God begins to transform that worker. Um, And think about this. What does God want to transform you into? Well, according to Romans 8.29, he is conforming you into the image of his son, Jesus. He wants to change you and shape you and mold you so your character becomes more and more over time, more like Jesus, more than last year. Hopefully more than last month. And he wants to conform you to what? The image of his son. To what? The image of God. He want, God is working to restore his image the one that's been marred by sin. He's working good in you and me as he restores the image of God in us. 2 Corinthians 5.14 For Christ's love compels us, the Apostle Paul writes, because we are convinced that one died for all. That's Jesus. And therefore all died. And he died for all. That those who live, that's us, should no longer live For themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. When we understand grace, when we understand what Jesus gave to us, then it makes sense. His love for us compels us. We ought not be serving ourselves. We ought to be serving him in the workplace. Um, 2 Corinthians 5.20 We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Uh, You've probably heard me say this a few times. We are ambassadors for Christ. We are his representatives. We are to go before him. So as people encounter us, they would get a little bit of a flavor of what Jesus would be like. Is this an honest honest person? Does this person do good work? Is, is, 
Is this a person a hard worker? Uh, does this person care about other people? And as people encounter us, they learn those things about us. Hopefully some of them are true. Also, work can shape us for our good. Or we, by the way, we can be shaped by our work. If we, if we let our work mold us under pressure, and it's like we are, it's out of control, and I don't, can't do anything because of my work. I... Work can shape us for our good. Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Suffering in the workplace? I bet you feel like that sometimes. Work is hard. And this definitely includes the workplace. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. God wants to transform us and develop us and develop in us perseverance. A, A strength, an inner strength to cope day by day. He wants to produce character. He wants to mold us and shape us so that we'll be more like Jesus. And he wants to produce hope because people with hope can get up every morning and face their day and not be overwhelmed by next week or next month or next year because we have hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So God has given us the Holy Spirit. He is our ultimate resource. If you're a follower of Christ, He lives in you, and God's love has been poured out into you. And if you want to experience God's love, then walk with Christ in the workplace. Try that. And have the Holy Spirit empower you. And if you experience God's love, it will be something that you actually feel with his presence. Also, work can display Jesus in in our workplace. I kind of have been beating around the bush about this one, but let's just say it. Work can display Jesus in our workplace. And a a passage to remind us is Matthew 5.14. When Jesus told his followers, you are the light of the world, a town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Well, the idea of the town was it's up on a hill, and so you can see it for miles around. You can see it as you approach. Uh, when When nightfall comes, there are usually lights, at least early in the evening, and you can say, well, that's where the city is. That's where the town is. It's on display. And Jesus is saying, you, as my followers, are on display. You are to be the light. He's already said he's the light of the world. Now he turns to his followers and says, you, you are the light. You are on display. You are to reflect who I am. And then we go to verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your father in heaven, that they may see your good deeds, that they may see your good work, And if we're working for God, our work at work should be good. And our work at work should display something about Jesus. 
And that can have an impact on the people we work with. We've said it this way, good work can lead to goodwill, good relationships, which may lead to opportunities for good news. Whether we have that opportunity to share the good news or not, we are to do good work. And we are to represent Jesus in our work. So yes, work can be a pain. Um, and it has a lot to do with the impact of sin in the universe from the very beginning. Sometimes work can be meaningless. So, hey, if you experience that, you're probably normal. Uh, Sometimes work gets distorted. It's easy to get a little sloppy in our attitudes about work and our relationship with Jesus. Uh, Sometimes workers are quite lazy and they can be difficult to work with in the workplace. But remember, work can be transformed by the gospel. If you've been transformed by the gospel, that means your work is being transformed by the gospel. We are given resources to cope. There is purpose for our work. Do you see that? You have purpose for your work. We serve an audience of one. You know, today is Sunday. We call it the Lord's Day. And a recent poll conducted in 2015 on Monster.com found that 76% of Americans report of having really bad Sunday blues. Because on Sunday night, they dread going to work on Mondays. Career expert Vicky Salami said the level of anxiety Americans feel heading into the workplace remains significantly high and it is counterproductive. So we know that work can be a pain, but we are imperfect people. We work with imperfect people in an imperfect world. And we work for an audience of one. He is for us. He is not against us. And he's working to restore the image of God that has been marred by sin. Our work really can have eternal significance. And you know who? It's most important to, it's the audience of one. He says it's eternally significant. It's not about us determining whether it was eternally significant. So, let's stand for prayer. And may we shine well on Monday morning. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, uh, for your word and for your instructions and for Um, how much information you've given us in scripture about day-to-day living. Help us to uh, reflect on the work you've given us, how we handle our work, the things that are difficult, things that are hard, the difficult people we work with. Help us to uh, align our hearts with you, recognize that Ultimately, we work for you first. And we want to reflect something about you in the workplace. I pray that you'll empower us, that you'll enable us 
and that indeed we would shine. That people would get glimpses from time to time through us about what Jesus is like. In his name I pray, amen.